0: morning, church, and happy Father's Day to all the dads again. Today's scripture reading will be in Philippians 2, starting verse 1 to 4. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, it is on page 900. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, we're glad to have Pastor Andrew Bywaters preaching God's Word to us. Let me introduce him to you. Uh, Pastor Andrew received his Master of Divinity from Fuller Seminary. He served also as a missionary in Taiwan for six years. Uh, He and his wife, Angela, joined the staff of West Houston Chinese Church in February 2011 as English pastor to focus on meta ministry. He's also working on a Ph.D. in New Testament at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And this morning he told me that he actually submitted a big paper last night uh, at 11 o'clock, so we were glad that he's still awake and able to preach to us this morning. So let's give him a warm HCC welcome. Let's pray. Well, Father, we know that Satan's desire is to snatch your word uh, away from our hearts before it has a chance to enter, that uh, he wishes uh, for us not to hear your word and respond to it and bear fruit. And so we pray that you would uh, open our hearts, that you would give us your protection and allow us to, to hear your word, to understand it and to delight uh, in, in it, Uh, and to delight in you. I pray, Father, against all distraction. I pray against all temptation, but that in this morning, uh, that in this place, our eyes would be riveted and focused upon you, upon your word, the source of our hope and our life. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I thank you for the warm introduction that uh, Henry gave. Uh, Just to tell you a little bit about uh, one part of my life. Um, I was a missionary in Taiwan for six years. Uh, Before that, I had been serving as a staff worker for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in Los Angeles, California. And my... I was never able to raise the full financial support, and so I always had to work part-time to be able to pay the rent and just basically survive. And so uh, the job I was able to find was to be a tutor at uh, uh, a bushi-ban. I, I, in English, what he's you say, a cram school or an SAT prep school or something like that? But I was teaching SAT and TOEFL and, uh, and GRE, and you name the test, I'm pretty sure I've, I've taught it. Um, and my boss... And the staff and all of our students were either uh, from Taiwan or increasingly at that time in the late and mid-1990s from China, or they were children of immigrants. And so I began to become more and more familiar with uh, Asian culture, Taiwanese culture in particular. And I was overjoyed when one year as a bonus, uh, my boss invited me Uh, to spend two weeks, one week uh, in Hong Kong, one week in Taipei on an all expenses paid vacation as my Christmas bonus. And she'd already uh, connected me with former ESL students who were living in both of those places. And so uh, it was just, it it was great. And so I went to Hong Kong for a week and I confess I did not like Hong Kong very much. Uh, this, it's, it's an amazing city, uh, I, you know, very well-developed. I just found the people to be a little uh, harsh at times. Okay. So I know there's a huge Cantonese contingent here. But uh, then I... The next week, I went to... Uh, Tai- Taipei, and I had the exact opposite uh, experience, I, the friendliest, warmest people I'd ever met in my life. And so uh, I, I spent the week there, and I, we saw some of the natural beauty in the south of Taiwan as well, but the thing that stood out for me the most was uh, not the food, not the, fr- uh, the best food on the planet, or not the friendliness of the people, but there was a one afternoon, where a former student of mine took me to a Taoist temple. Now, at that time, I, with InterVarsity, I was teaching, uh, leading students through a Bible study on Sermon on the Mount, and we were going through the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that struck me in the Lord's Prayer is, the, is this idea that your father or He prefaces the prayer by saying, do not be like the Gentiles who heap up their empty phrases or their repeated words, For your Father in heaven knows what you need even before you ask him. And I was meditating on that and pondering that when I walk into this temple. And they have these uh, little plastic things which are kind of like the umam and thumam in the Bible, except it's not the priest who has them. Everybody has them. And they're throwing these things down. And with these anxious looks on their face, looking to see which way they fall onto the ground to see whether uh, whatever gods they are praying to are going to give them a favorable response to their requests. And you could see as they looked down and saw the results, either this look of terror or this look of joy would come over them. And as I witnessed this scene, these words from Matthew, from Jesus himself, came to mind. And I had this deep, deep desire for two things. One, that these people would realize we have a Father in heaven who knows what we need before we ask Him and whose deepest desire is to give us exactly what we need to enjoy Him and find our joy and pleasure in Him forever. The second thought that came to mind was a deep desire For God, for Jesus Christ to be the one who is honored by our coming to Him for our needs and with our desires and not to pagan gods. And as this desire welled up in me, which would eventually lead me to going to Taiwan as a missionary, I began to understand what it means to make the glory of God, His name, His renown, His fame, our deepest and greatest joy. Now, that story, I think, leads very well into the passage that we are looking at today from Philippians. So please keep your Bibles turned there to Philippians 2. as I will return there in just a moment. I understand you've been going through Philippians. Philippians is a letter written by by Paul from prison, probably from Rome, in which he has several purposes. Uh, One is to express his deep uh, love and affection for this church. And I think you've seen that, particularly in the first chapter, section of the book where he talks about his unceasing prayers for them. He's also writing to thank them for the financial support that they've given, and you'll see that uh, later on in in the book, both in in chapter 2 and then later in chapter chapter 4. But there's one other thing that Paul is trying to do. He's trying to encourage them uh, to, to be unified in the face of opposition. And as you move later on in the in the letter, you'll see that there is some conflict within the church, particularly between two women, Euodia uh, uh, and uh, Syntech. Uh, and so Paul wants them to reconcile and to be in agreement in the Lord. And so what Paul says, I look at you, Philippians, and I love you with all my heart, and I want you to have the same joy and affection that I do for Christ and for each other. And so... I urge you to be unified in the face of the pressures and struggles that you are facing. So that's the, the bigger picture that this passage we're looking at fits into in this, in this epistle, in this letter. So as we look at these four verses, I'm going to frame this passage around three questions that I think the text presses us to answer. Three questions. One, one, why would their unity complete Paul's joy? So that's the first question. Why would their unity complete Paul's joy? The second question that I think this text raises is, what does this unity consist in? The same mind as who? The same mind as Paul, as one another, of Christ? And what, what is this agreeing mind? Can we ever disagree on anything? Is any disagreement sin? Sin? And then the last question, um, I guess that was like four questions combined into one. But the third question is why is the command to complete Paul's joy by being of the same mind contingent upon or dependent on verse 1? And if there is any encouragement, or if, in, if there's any encouragement, in, or any any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love or participation in the spirit any, spirit, any sympathy or affection? Why is that the condition that needs to be met for them to complete Paul's joy by being in unity? So three basic questions. Start with the first one. Why does their unity complete Paul's joy? And so we have to step back and ask even more questions. I'm all about asking questions. So we have to step back and ask another question. What brings, Paul's, what brings Paul joy? What does Paul find joyful? And I think you'll find it's something very different from what usually brings us joy. I mean, my joy was full Thursday night when the Golden State Warriors won their fourth NBA title in eight years. Okay. But it was a fleeting joy. The next mor- moment, the next morning, I'm no longer reveling in that victory, but wondering whether they can afford to keep Andrew Wiggins and Jordan Poole on the same team. So there, there's a joy that we find, a joy in our, our spouse or our children or our work or in our school or in our hobbies. It is a real joy, but it is not lasting, it is not deep. Uh, it will fade. It is never fully complete. I've been married for uh, 21 years. I love my yes, 21 years. I my wife we we have, we have a great marriage. I have an, a 10 year old daughter. Uh, she actually attends the same schools in the same class as uh, Pastor Jason's daughter Talia. Uh, they're, they're good friends. They go swimming together often. I have deep joy in my family, but I would not say it is complete there is always something uh, unmet expectations uh, disappointments uh, habits uh, in one another that always detract from that joy being full and complete but there's something that will make paul's joy complete What what is that and why is that? And so let's look at what Paul rejoices in. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul twice claims he will rejoice. Why? Because Christ is preached in his imprisonment. And that Christ will deliver Paul from his imprisonment. How? By preserving Paul's life? No, by preserving his faith in his imprisonment whether he lives or dies, Jesus Christ will be honored in his body by his continued faithfulness. Paul is convinced Jesus will keep him faithful to the end and in that he rejoices. Later, in two, chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says he rejoices with the Philippians and that they should rejoice with him. Why? For the same reason. They see Christ being magnified through the persevering faith of each other. In 2:29 he commands the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus who brought Paul the gift and now is going back with this letter that to receive him with joy why for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So again Epaphroditus is to be received with joy and honored because Christ was magnified. He was made to look glorious in his suffering faith. In chapter 4, verse 1, the Philippians are called Paul's joy and crown and are then urged to stand firm in the faith, providing another connection point between joy and seeing Christ honored or glorified or magnified through our persevering faith. In 4.4, 4, the Philippians are commanded to rejoice in the context of trusting fully in the Lord and being anxious about nothing. Christ is magnified in that they see that all their needs are provided by Jesus Christ and Him only. And in 4.10, Paul rejoices that the Philippians have, rec- have, have given their gift to Paul. Again, because Christ is honored by their faithfulness in giving sacrificially to support his ministry. Paul's joy is made complete when he sees Jesus shown to be glorious by people trusting in Christ for their joy. Even in in fact, especially in the midst of suffering. Why? Because that makes Christ look glorious. When you can rejoice in Jesus Christ, when you can say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, 73 that, uh, though my heart and flesh may fail, God is my portion forever. Who am I in heaven? Who have I in heaven or on earth? but you, O Lord. It makes him look glorious when people see that Jesus is more valuable to you than the job that you just lost. When people see that Christ is more valuable to you than in the praise of others that does not come because you took a stand for Jesus. Christ looks glorious when you, reve- when you show that you have more joy in living a life of integrity and trusting him than in cheating on a test to advance in school. Whenever we demonstrate or show that our relationship with Jesus is more precious than even life itself We glorify God as the source and object of our heart's deepest desires. And so, the unity that Paul is asking for must somehow be connected to the Philippians finding in Christ their heart's Contentment and treasure and joy. And so that leads to the second question What does this unity consist in? And the answer would be that unity consists in finding Jesus Christ to be our greatest treasure. So, what mind is this? Is it the mind of Paul? Is it the same mind that they have with each other? Is it the mind of Christ? And the answer is all three. We are all to have, like Paul, the same mind as Christ. Now this is going to be laid out in much more detail. What is the mind of Christ in the passage that follows next week? And I don't want to steal whoever's preaching next week. I don't want to steal their, their thunder. But what we see in Jesus is a willingness to lay down His life and let go of His glory so that the Father is magnified above all. We are also to live like that. We are to lay aside our ambitions, our selfish desires, because there is a greater joy and that is the joy of seeing Jesus uh, revealed as all-glorious. Selfish ambition and conceit are set aside with this mind. And others are more important than ourselves. This is because of two things. On a lower level, if everybody is more concerned about others than themselves, then we build a community where we know that we will not be abused if we live and love like this. I mean, think about your families. Think about your marriages, uh, your uh, relationship with your parents or with your children or uh, with your friends. How much heartache or trouble comes because there are lingering doubts about whether this other person or these other people really care? With my wife, every argument. We start peeling away the onion layers of why uh, she's so upset with me. It always comes down to, so upset at a comment I made. Upset because I forgot to wash the dishes. Okay, upset because I didn't follow through on a commitment that I had made. Okay, every single that we, we we work through. Okay, why does this make you so angry? And we just we ask questions. We because I'm all about questions. We ask question after question after question, and it always comes down to this. What you did or didn't do, said or didn't say, makes me wonder whether you really care. Well, in a community, a church, a family, where everyone is committed to living like this, where I count others more important than myself, that creates an environment of safety where I know that I will not be abused, I will not be taken advantage of if I offer myself in love and service to other people. I've I've been in Chinese churches for over a quarter century now. And just in talking to people, there's always often a hesitancy to be engaged in ministries that require a time commitment because people have this sense that if I begin to get involved, the church is going to be like a sponge. They're just going to wring every last drop out of me and I'll be burned out and and hung out to dry. Now That's an exaggeration. But we we need to, to realize that there... there There can be that temptation to where we use other people to get what we need accomplished without first thinking through how will this role in ministry, how will this volunteer position actually serve and benefit this person and help them grow in Jesus? And how do I make sure this becomes an area of growth and joy for them rather than one that uh, uses and abuses them? So on the first level, this this kind of life creates a safe environment. But I don't think that's what Paul's really getting at. What Paul's really getting at is that if I treat others better than myself, because I trust in Jesus, it's because I realize that even if I am abused, even if I am taken advantage of, even if every last drop is wrung out of me by this company or this church or this family. My trust is that Christ will be honored in me, whether I live or I die. So this mind we are to have is a mind that values Christ and His glory above everything else. Now a question that could be asked is, all right, this unity of mind is primarily a common value of Jesus Christ above all else. Okay. Well, how far does that agreement extend? Does it extend into theology? Does it extend into practical church ministry? Does it extend into uh, what restaurants in Houston are better than others? I mean, at, w- at what point does disagreement become disunity. And I would say that Paul's answer is we're always striving for agreement, not in things that have nothing to do with the faith. I mean, like whether you should you know, in, invest in uh, real estate or the stock market, I don't think that's an issue where we have to agree. Or I don't think we need to agree on who uh, we vote for in the upcoming elections. I think that is an area where Christians can legitimately disagree without it uh, affecting the unity of the church. But when it comes to issues of church doctrine, church practice, we are to strive for unity as much as possible. Now, this does not mean uh, we're just yes men, that whatever the pastor says, we agree to. Uh, That's not true unity, that's just conformity. True Christian unity comes when we engage each other about our areas of disagreement and commit to working through them until we have consensus. True Christian unity comes through hard and difficult work of listening to each other, of putting aside our own goals and ambitions, in order to truly understand the perspective of the person we are disagreeing with, seeing it through his or her eyes, and then evaluating and weighing the truth or falsehood of what they are saying or seeing. We handle disagreement in a way that honors unity by working for reconciliation and consensus and not by papering things over, pretending to get along to go along. Go along to get along, whatever the phrase is. And and I've seen that for uh, churches in general and uh, Chinese churches in particular, this can often be be difficult. You know, when... uh, I was talking to my senior pastor in Taiwan when I was uh, working there, and he had a very interesting observation about the difference between uh, you know, Westerners and, and Asians. And he just said, you know, for you Westerners, ambiguity is a problem that needs to be solved. Okay. Yeah. We Asians, we often think that ambiguity is the solution to the problem. Okay. Yeah. And then he just, he said, and and we need to repent of that because that's not true unity. That when we all walk away with our own understanding and not common understanding in a disagreement, that does not build unity. That just paves the way for greater disunity later on. Okay. Okay. Finally, okay. We've got this command to complete Paul's joy. Paul's joy, our joy, should be made complete when we see Christ magnified by our common pursuit of Jesus as our greatest treasure and working through any disagreements about how we are to do that or how we are to understand that. Verse 1 begins with, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy. Why this if? Why not just come out with a straight forward command, complete my joy by being of the same mind? Why does he preface it with this conditional? Okay. Well, there's a twofold answer to this question. First, He's reminding us of our identity in Jesus Christ and that disunity is inconsistent with our identity as Christians. That the body of Christ is not to be divided. It's setting Jesus against himself. But second, this kind of unity is only possible for those in Christ because this joy is only possible by the prior work of the Spirit. God must act first to create in us a new heart that finds its joy not in money, sex, or power, but in Jesus Christ. God must create in us a heart through His Spirit that sees Jesus as more precious than our ambitions or conceits. The Holy Spirit must work in our hearts to create in us this kind of trust in Him and in ourselves that we can spend ourselves in service to one another and to Christ Jesus and knowing that we will get back from Jesus far more than we spend. So for Paul, his thinking is like this. If this has happened to you, if you've had this experience of knowing Jesus and seeing how precious he is, of experiencing the joy of having your sins forgiven by his death on the cross, if you've experienced the comfort of his presence through his spirit, both in terms of your own relationship with him and your communal experience of him and your relationship in your church, if you have seen the beauty of Jesus Christ, and the the goodness of His ways, if you've tasted any of this, then you are going to want what I want. You are going to want the glory of Jesus over the glory of yourself. You are going to want your brother or sister to know Jesus and to continue to follow Him more than you will want your financial advantage or your prestige among your friends. This is only possible if you have been born again. And so if you are not a Christian, if you are in here and you've never experienced any of this before, I just encourage you today, if this idea of living in a community where people treat others more important than themselves is appealing to you, If the idea of having something bigger than yourself, a picture of glory, strikes you as something that you would want, that that is something that is bigger and more meaningful than pursuing a career of prestige and wealth, then I would just encourage you to pray today and ask Jesus to make this a reality for you. He will not despise or refuse your prayers. If you've not experienced this and you want it, He will answer you. So my charge to uh, the rest of you, to those of you who are in Christ today, is remember your first joy and seek to build on that. Do not let the cares of this world, the pursuit of riches, of wealth, of, of prestige. The demands of work and family. Even the demands of ministry. To chip away at your joy in Jesus Christ. You know, I, Even for pastors, this is a huge temptation. When we spend most of our time in the Bible, not for our own edification, but for preparing sermons and Bible studies or preparing to lead meetings. That does something deep and dark to our hearts that we have to combat and force ourselves to say, no, I'm going to take time in the Scripture simply because I delight to hear His voice and His Word. If that is true for pastors, I imagine it is true for others as well. I don't think we're the only ones who suffer that temptation. Our life, our church life, can sometimes become rote and everyday. If that is the case for you, share that with people you trust and know. Pray with each other. Do whatever it takes to keep your heart set on seeing Jesus for what he really is the source of all glory and all beauty and all joy. Let us fight together so that we all attain to the same unity that Paul encourages us to. That we fight with one another to maintain our joy in Jesus and Jesus alone. And if we will fight for that for each other, I guarantee you, you will find yourself living in a church community surrounded by people who are giving everything they have for your interest, for your joy. And you will find yourself being able to do the same for others. And it will be a beautiful thing. And it will show Jesus Christ to be incredibly attractive to a broken world caught up in its own conceits, in its own pursuits that so desperately needs to see something larger and bigger than themselves. Let's pray. Father God, the challenge to treat others as greater than ourselves, to lay aside our ambitions, our conceit, is a, is, is, is a, is a large one. But we trust, Lord, that if we've tasted in you, if we've tasted you and seen that you are good, you will do this for us. And so I pray that through the means of grace, through pursuing you in Scripture and in worship and in community, you will help renew in us a heart inflamed for your glory, hearts that see your beauty as our greatest joy. And we will find in ourselves and in each other a place of true joy and delight because you are at our center. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.